everyone to the first Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk of 2022. I'm Dolly Jurgensen. I'm Finn Arne Jurgensen. And we're happy to welcome you today uh, to hear Greg Mittman, who's Villas Research and William Coleman Professor of History, Medical History and Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the US. And he's also just taken up a position with an ERC at um, LMU in Munich. And he's going to be discussing his book, Empire of Rubber, Firestone's Scramble for Land and Power in Liberia, which came out with the new press in 2021. So Greg, we'll give it over to you to introduce the book. Great. Uh, thanks so much, Dolly and Finarne, for this opportunity. Thanks for all of you that are joining from many different places. Um, so uh, in the in the 15 minutes I have, I'm going to just start with an excerpt from the book and, and then offer some reflections on larger themes and issues that the book addresses at the intersections of environmental history, history of science and medicine, and the environmental humanities um, uh, before launching into our, you know, uh, a Q&A. So to start, I'm gonna just uh, share some images as, as I'm uh, talking here. And um, just to begin with this, with this kind of book opening. Rubber is the most important commodity in the world, Harvey Firestone, president of the Rubber Association of America, declared to the association's more than 600 members and guests gathered at the New York City's Waldorf Astoria Hotel for an annual meeting in 1917. And this uh, is, uh, Harvey Firestone here is, is on the right, in the middle is Thomas Edison, to his left is, is uh, the naturalist John Burroughs, and they would go on these celebrated camping trips in the teens and 20s, uh, along with, with Henry Ford. And, and uh, this is uh, one of the pictures on those camping trips, uh, taken around the time when Firestone is, is speaking to the Rubber Association. Many industrious exudes dressed in black tuxes and white bow ties laughed at such an audacious claim as they feasted upon oysters, squaws, bisque and wine. The 48-year-old Firestone was dead serious. The grand ballroom in which guests dined and where he delivered his remarks was decorated for the occasion with a lavish patriotic display of draped American flags. William Howard Taft, another famed Ohio, was guest of honor that evening. At 350 pounds, he was a giant of a man. Moreover, Taft, who became the first governor general of the Philippines under American occupation in 1901 and served as president of the United States from 1909 to 1913, had no qualms about throwing around the weight of private capital and government to gain economic and political advantage for American firms in foreign lands. Taft's efforts to build a civilian government in the Philippines and in particular to secure a place for American capital where the industry, rubber industry might grow and produce its rubber under the American flag was welcomed with applause by the dinner guests. Noting that the United States consumes 60% of all crude rubber in the world, Taft reminded the attendees of the awkwardness of being without a supply of rubber. And this is a picture of the Firestone factory in, in Akron in the early 20s. The increase in the demand for rubber, Taft observed, emphasizes our greater dependence upon tropical products and the greater necessity for the improvement of conditions of life 
and business and government in tropical countries. Firestone couldn't have asked for a speech more in keeping with where his own thoughts had begun to turn. So this is the opening of the first chapter of Empire of Rubber, and the, and the book offers a story of how a behemoth American company on a nationalist mission of profit, robed in beneficence, negotiated, maneuvered, and bullied its way into what was then one of only two sovereign Black nations on the African continent. Stepping outside America helps to make visible the structures of white privilege and power, buttressed by science and medicine that drove the march of American capitalism and empire across the globe. But the story of Firestone in Liberia is more than a story of white supremacy and racial capitalism that powered an American family dynasty for more than half a century. It is also a history of contestation, complicity, and resistance. The leaders of a struggling Black Republic maneuvered to hold their ground to save Liberia from becoming an American protectorate. And this is Edwin Barclay, president of Liberia from 1930 to 1944, who was a masterful diplomat and politician who really thwarted Firestone's attempts to turn Liberia into an American protectorate. From across the African diaspora, Black activists, writers, scientists, diplomats, and business people rallied to support or oppose the experiment that was Firestone in Liberia. Could the plantation free itself from the violence of land dispossession, racial exploitation, and unfree labor that shaped its history in the Atlantic world? Could American capital be trusted to respect the rights of a sovereign black nation and its people in an imperial and colonial world? Would Firestone prove to be an angel or a devil to Liberia? Such questions swirled around the promise Harvey Firestone Sr. made to build in Liberia a modern industrial plantation that would bring great benefits to the country and its people. These questions remain today. So why Firestone? In exploring the role of science and medicine and disease in the making of an industrial landscape, I used the Firestone rubber plantations in Liberia to query and push on some historiographic themes, theoretical issues, and analytic tools at the intersections of environmental history, the history of science and medicine, and the environmental humanities. First is the generic use of the term ecology within environmental humanities, such that it has virtually no meaning other than relationality. Long ago, Donna Haraway pointed out the emergence of ecosystem ecology as a war baby. And I saw the Firestone plantations as an opportunity to interrogate how industrial ecologies rooted in particular formations of capital land and labor in the monoculture production of commodities and buttressed by American science and medicine, reshaped life and livelihoods in the global reach of American capital and empire, particularly in West Africa. Second, if environmental history is a project in understanding how new worlds are made, then we need to shift our attention, I would suggest, away from the state, which has dominated much scholarship in the field, to a consideration of the corporation, which has been the primary maker of worlds for much of the 20th and all of the 21st centuries. Firms build worlds. And we need to ask how science and medicine have been integral to the making of these engineered worlds in the mine, on the plantation, and in the factory. Third, I've been increasingly concerned with the relative absence of race as an analytic category in environmental history, as well as the whiteness of the field. What productive dialogues might be forged across environmental history 
History of Science and Medicine and Critical Black Studies. The granting of a million acres of land for a 99 year concession to Firestone by a black republic in an effort to secure protection from European colonial powers occupied considerable controversy and debate among black writers, businessmen, politicians, and scientists across the African diaspora in the first half of the 20th century. Um, this is a map of Liberia in 1926. It shows the way in which it was surrounded by European colonial powers. Um, and you know, one of, uh, this is W.E.B. Du Bois, who initially was very supportive of the Firestone and experiment in Liberia and then became one of its most vocal critics. The project, the book also offers an opportunity to explore the diverse ways in which the natural and social sciences were being appropriated and used by black intellectuals in Africa and across the diaspora in articulating different visions of development. One of the heroes in the book, George Brown, was a African-American who got his degree in anthropology at the London School of Economics, did a brilliant, wrote a brilliant um, economic and environmental history of Liberia through an ethnographic study he spent there um, that was very prescient of the ways in which Firestone would transform um, lands and livelihoods there. This is Frank Pinder on the very left, who is a black agricultural scientist trained at Florida A&M University, uh, who spent a decade in Liberia uh, working with smallholder farmers to develop up a counter plantation model of development in opposition to the Firestone's plantation economy. Today, a massive wave of industrial plantation agriculture washes over the world in a rush for land. Estimates suggest that globally more than 75 million acres have been sold or leased in the past decade alone to foreign investors for large scale oil palm rubber and agricultural concessions. In the West African nation of Liberia, roughly 50% of land in 2018 have been leased to long-term foreign investors. In Senitown, a small village isolated within a vast checkerboard expanse of newly planted oil palm, it's located in here. A middle-aged man angrily recounted to me the loss of everything. The swamps where his grandmother fished, the land where women made farms to earn money to send children to school, all had been taken when his people lost their customary lands to Simdarbi, a Malaysian oil palm company that secured in 2009 a 63-year lease for more than 500,000 acres of land from Liberia's government. Simdarbi in Liberia was not a new story, he told me. We sit on old maps to plate new ones. The Liberian turn of phrase gestures to the interlaced layers of past and present the ways new ideas or situations are built upon old ones. Firestone is the old map here, the man argues. The way the old map was badly plated is the same the way the new ones are being plated today. Land dispossession is always the first act in the making of a plantation world. And this gives you a sense of the scale of, of the kind of land clearing that was happening and the fires that were burned. You can see a small little house um, in there with a little garden that gives you a sense of the scale of, of the operations. Almost 100 years ago, Firestone secured a major land concession in Liberia to build a vast rubber plantation. Eager to break the British stranglehold on the world's rubber supply, Harvey Firestone looked to the tiny West African nation founded in 1847 to realize his dreams of achieving American rubber independence. Harbell, 
situated 40 miles southeast of the capital city of Monrovia in an area encircled by the Dew, Junk and Farmington rivers was ground central for Firestone Plantations Company, now Firestone Liberia. Firestone is still operating there. The area was originally home to the Basa people whose lands were claimed by the Liberian government and ceded in 1926 to a foreign company to grow rubber in the hopes of securing the desperately needed capital <clears throat> uh, at a time when, when Liberia was heavily indebted to foreign nations. Firestone touted its Liberia plantations as an exemplar of modern industry and progress, buttressed by the transformative power and humanitarian benefits of American science and medicine. But it shared more in common with past plantation worlds than it stood apart from them. An industrial ecology built to satiate America's growing thirst for rubber at the dawn of the automobile age reordered relationships of life and land in Liberia. And during the Second World War, Liberia, those Liberia became, plantations became very, a very strategic importance to the Allied powers as they were cut off from Southeast Asia rubber plantations. And this is uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt with President uh, Barkley. It was the first time, this is in 1943, it was the first time an American president set foot on African soil. The intimate relations forged among people, trees, parasites, chemicals, and machines brought benefits and burdens that differentially affected lives in ways that reveal the racial logics of Firestone's corporate culture. At its peak in the late 1940s, the Firestone plantations employed approximately 30,000 Liberians, the majority of whom were tappers, earning 18 cents per se, supervised by roughly 125 white managers. Housing, this is white management housing, this is worker housing, and healthcare was segregated. Medical surveillance of and drug testing on workers' bodies was routine. Such conditions reinforced the impression of African-American diplomat Edward Dudley in 1951 that Firestone was transferring US Jim Crow policies to Liberia. Tappers are the lifeblood of any rubber plantation. Without their valuable knowledge and labor, latex will not flow. The tasks set the quota of work expected of each man. When cotton was king in the American South, plantation owners used it to organize the work and calculate the value of enslaved people. The task set for a tapper throughout the 1940s and 50s in Liberia averaged 300 trees per day. With utmost skill, the tapper sliced a shallow cut less than 1 16th of an inch wide into the bark of a tree. The cut, which ran from left to right at an angle of 30 degrees, was a controlled wound. A cut any wider wasted the tree's energies, regenerating bark. A cut any deeper risked damaging the tree. A wound too wide or too deep, and the tapper could shorten the life of the rubber tree. Firestone invested more in the life of a tree than that of a tapper. In the transformation of land and ecological relations that built and sustained plantation worlds, Firestone exacerbated disease risks and introduced new harms. The clearing of land and the recruitment of human labor opened up possibilities for opportunistic insects, such as the biting black fly, Simoleum yehensa, to thrive, and this was ideal habitat for the fly. 
As blackflies moved to the plantation, they brought along a parasitic worm, Onchocercovolvulus, which like its insect vector flourished in the Harbell plantations. Transmitted to its human host, Via the black fly, the parasite is one of the leading causes of blindness in sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the tropical world. 60 years after the first divisions along the Dew River were cleared, the prevalence of this parasite among male laborers living nearby averaged 80%. Chemicals that proliferated throughout the plantation complex were another health risk. Ammonia, a constant companion in the life of a tapper, was used without gloves or protective eye gear. It saturated the pores of a tapper's hand, deadened fingertips and destroyed nails. Some went blind when the corrosive and caustic chemical got into their eyes. Many other hazardous chemicals came onto the Firestone plantations in the post-war years. Laborers sprayed 245T on old rubber trees, clearing the dead vegetation to make room for new trees. The herbicide also leached into the soil and killed fungi responsible for root rot. But the herbicide contained small amounts of dioxin, a highly toxic environmental pollutant with no attention to the chemicals possible health effects on workers or on communities living downstream along the Dew and Farmington rivers. During the war years, lawsuits against the company brought by Liberian workers injured on the job or by surviving families who had lost a loved one in an industrial accident became more common. In response to increased pressure by the Liberian government, Firestone put a worker compensation policy in place. But its death benefit came nowhere close to the damages that the families of Firestone workers sought. In 1946, a tapper's life was valued by Firestone at $252. That's about $3,300 today. Provided the cause of death was not worker negligence. A foot amounted to compensation of $126. A hand was worth 700 times a worker's wages and I 640 times when a tapper earned 18.6 per day. In the calculus of workers' compensation, Fire Disclo Firestone disclosed the value it placed on the lives of Black laborers. It was a valuation founded upon structures of racial capitalism rooted in the violent and bloody soil plantation slavery. In Quiza, a village whose place name means the white or civilized people took us from there, people are still awaiting resettlement benefits that Firestone promised to their ancestors after taking their land and destroying their homes. Aquiza Elder remarks on a raising afternoon that the community is still waiting for Firestone to rebuild their village. The large group of young and old gathered together erupts in laughter. It's a joke that touches upon the pain of past deeds that severed relationships of the land and a recognition that neither Firestone nor the Liberian state will likely ever deliver reparations and justice. So I'll stop there and uh, look forward to the conversation. Thanks, Greg. Uh, very interesting uh, presentation and also great to see the, the images. I mean, there's, uh, you know, something to have a, a richly illustrated uh, book as well. So there's plenty of things we can discuss. As we said earlier, um, just a reminder to the audience, let us know in the chat if you have questions uh, and comments to Greg. Um, but I would start off, I thought, by asking a bit about 
in a way the role of corporations because you said you know one of your goals was to you know to shift environmental history the discussions we have away from you know looking at the state which you have done extensively and and instead consider corporations as well and i mean i agree uh that that is necessary i've also in in my work participated in that so one of the things that i find fascinating with corporations is then that you can often trace you know these values the the way a corporation works it makes decisions from the founders often you know strong individuals um, that put their values on the companies and then over time you know the founders disappear from the company you know they grow old or they take over other roles but you know some values continue you know it become this faceless corporation but one that still has values is still you know operates in particular ways that are not just all about capitalism so uh, could you say something about in a way the the evolution the formation of these corporate values over time with firestone yeah sure i mean you know one of the things about firestone is that it remains in the family for um almost over 75 years so, um, you know, Harvey Firestone starts the company in 1900 and the last son, you know, steps, retires from the presidency in um, 1978, I believe. Um, and then in 88, the company is sold to a, a, a Japanese company, uh, Bridgestone. So it's now Bridgestone Firestone. Um, and so, you know, that one of my interests was really in, you know, in writing it through the perspective of this family dynasty. And so, you know, it the, the book uh, ends, although there's an epilogue, but the, the last chapter of the book ends with uh, when Harvey Firestone Jr. retires as president in 63. It's also the same year that W.E.B. Du Bois uh, dies. And, and um, um, but there's very much a, a corporate culture, uh, a family culture uh, based on uh, paternalistic values. Um, and, uh, you know, Akron, uh, and also, uh, there's a, so Akron itself, um, had the largest concentration of the Ku Klux Klan north of the Mason-Dixon line. And if you look at the, the company itself, um, in Akron, um, black workers were not given the right to make tires, to man, to, which was the highest paid job on the factory floor until 1955. Um, Harvey Firestone sent his sons to Southern boarding schools uh, for, for high school. Um, they all went to Princeton, which is a Southern Ivy League. Um, uh, and so there's a way in which that uh, very kind of racist paternalistic culture within the family extends out to the way in which the, the company operated and the ways in which he, Firestone and, and, and Sons, I think, you know, really um, regarded the role of, of uh, Black people in, in, in the company. Um, to the extent that in the 1950s, um, the Firestone plantations with the rise of the civil rights movement in the US and um, decolonization, you know, independence movements in Africa, 
the Firestone plantations became a real embarrassment to the US State Department. And as such, and so they began to really put pressure on, on the family to, to change its ways. Um, and it, and the, the level of segregation was so severe that in 1958, the Liberian government had to pass an anti-segregation bill. Um, so here you have a sovereign black republic where whites can neither own land, right, nor be citizens having to pass an anti-segregation bill because of the kind of segregation that was happening on these uh, corporate enclaves, largely American. And it wasn't just rubber plantations, it was also American mining companies. So a major issue when doing historical research on corporations is of course that corporations have an interest in uh well being in control over the histories that are told about them uh in my own work on beverage container recycling i mean i worked with a company that has you know a good reputation you know they're, they're in many ways a positive force in the world we had a good working relationship but it was still a challenge you know to get access to to material uh how was this process for you what kind of sources did you work with and what challenges did you face so um, there is a very large Firestone archive, um, which exists in, at the University of Akron and Public University, has existed there uh, for since the 1970s, actually before. In, in the 1950s, the Firestone published a pamphlet um, extolling um, the, the, the importance of this archive that they started building after, after the Second World War. And it was clear uh, that Harvey Forrest Stone Jr. intended these to be public and really saw this as important to American business history. Um, no historian, to my knowledge, except one graduate student in, in 1970 was ever granted access to, the, to these archives. Um, I tried many times, uh, uh, was always denied access. And in um, 2005, there was a class action lawsuit against the uh, Firestone Bridgestone for um, alleged labor abuses on the plantations. And I got in touch with the lawyers representing the plaintiffs and said, you know, could we get the archive opened up through discovery? Because, you know, when, whether it's the history of, uh, health and tobacco, or, you know, now with climate change, like the ways in which corporate archives are often opened up is through lawsuits. And a judge was actually more inclined to, a, was wondering, you know, why is a public institution holding this archive? Uh, you know, I don't know whether Firestone was giving money to the University of Akron to support this archive or not, but if not, it was being held at taxpayers' expense. And the archivist told me that, there, they showed me the area that it once occupied. It came with a complete catalog. It's a huge collection. Um, and the case was thrown out for other reasons. And then in 2017, uh, Firestone Bridgestone arrived with the semi and removed the entire archive. And it's now in a private warehouse. We have no idea where it was, is. Um, but this archive is really also um, important to Liberian history because it uh, much of Liberia's archives, national archives, was destroyed during this 14 years of civil war. And, and um, you know, at one point, th those um, 
plantations accounted for 90% of all exports coming out of Liberia in 1951. So you can get a sense of how intimate the history of Firestone is with the history of Liberia. So I, you know, but that's, you know, just because you can't get access to archives um, that, and, and if people are interested, I published a, a, a piece in Slate um, this fall uh, about this. Um, you know, doesn't mean that it's impossible to do corporate histories. And the state US State Department archives were great, you know, for this. Um, you, I found diaries of, you know, white uh, plantation managers, interviewed uh, more than 30 uh, retired Firestone workers in Liberia, um, you know, uh, rubber trade journals. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways that, that um, it took a long time to piece this story together. And, you know, I think it's one of the reasons no one ever took on this project. Um, but in the end, it's possible. Um, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I think the comments in the chat are, you know, I literally gasped out loud with that um, archive story. And I know I did hear <laughs> too, um, as, as you told that, um, you know, every historian's nightmare. Um, but as you say, um, there are ways to get around or to find other sources that tell the stories that need to be uh, told. Um, and so one of the things that struck me when you were talking then of course this is a plantation system and you brought up uh the in fact the move from rubber plantation to now oil palm plantations um in liberia and i know that in your previous work you've used the term plantationocene for what's going on here and you didn't include that in in this brief talk so i was wondering if you could say a little bit about um, the plantation, the scene, and how you think plantations fit into our current environmental moment. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we, I was one of the co-hosts of a Sawyer seminar called Interrogating the Plantation Scene um, at Madison, which uh, lasted for two years. Um, the interrogation was important. That is, it was never meant to be an adoption of this term. It was meant to really explore, uh, you know, could the plant, this concept of the, this idea of the plantation of scene, which, you know, um, as, a, as a term was introduced by Donna Haraway and Anand Singh, although, you know, again, they're within, critical black studies, there's been a long history of thinking about the plantation, but in terms of thinking about it, you know, as a planetary scale phenomenon, I mean, that's where the, the came ter term came from in terms of as an alternative to the Anthropocene. Um, and over the course of that seminar, I uh, became very suspicious of the term. And, and really of all terms that uh, really, make an effort that kind of move up to the planetary scale. Because I think they really, um, in doing that, it really um, ignores and simplifies and obfuscates the different kinds of, of um, st stories of, of racialized violence 
um, and plantation formations that are happening across the world. So like one of the things in the, in the seminar, you know, we, the, the story of, of plantations in Southeast Asia um, is quite different than the story in, in the Atlantic world. Um, and, you know, and so that the term doesn't quite grasp it. I mean, I think one of the important, why, I, you know, I was really interested is, is in the ways in which the, the Anthropocene really flattens out relations of power, flattens out issues of racial inequality um, in the way in which the plantation scene might possibly bring that in. Um, but, and, and, but in the end of the day, um, yeah, I never use the term in the book. Um, uh, and, and I, I think it raises more problems than, um, than, than advantages in, in the end. So. Yeah, that's the case with much terminology, but it, I mean, it's very useful to interrogate it the way you've done, uh, yeah. I think. So another thing I'd like to ask uh, is um, the relationship between the work you did in this project and the film you made previously, because we saw some stills uh, in the pictures you showed. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, also in a way, how your practice as a historian has been informed by working with other media. Yeah. So, so this project was really, you know, a three-part multimedia project. And um, the first was the building of a, a public uh, history website. I'll just put it in here uh, for people to look at. Uh, and it was, um, it's, it was a public history website uh, done in cooperation with the Center for National Documents and Records Agency in Liberia, the National Archives in Liberia, in which um, uh, there was a 1926 Harvard expedition undertaken uh, to Liberia on, on behalf of Firestone. Um, and that at the time they, they took about um, close to 700 photographs and about two hours of motion picture footage. And that, that material had never been before seen in Liberia. And so we, um, you know, built this website that would be accessible, uh, you know, across the world and, and particularly in, in Liberia. And we were building it, we built it at a time when um, download speeds in Liberia were 64 kilobytes per second. Um, so we had to, you know, really deal with the kind of technological divides. I mean, if that's no longer the case, um, but at the time we built it, um, uh, that was the, that was the case. And then, um, in the process of, of, um, so part of the, part of the project also, uh, in terms of the methods, uh, was to take these films and photographs, uh, and we were, we retraced parts of the itinerary of the expedition and, and, to, and went to these places and asked, you know, what kind of meaning these photographs had for people. And, um, you know, and I, at first I thought this was gonna be a project about American biomedical research in Liberia because this Harvard expedition was a biomedical expedition. A lot of the photographs are you know, diseases and, and so forth. But that's not what really, um, generated the most conversations. The most conversations were around land and meanings of land and, and land dispossession. And, and that's what led to the making of the film, 
the land beneath our feet um, uh, because it was we were doing that at a time when there was a government uh, commission uh, that was investigating issues of land rights in Liberia and, and developing a series of, of recommendations of land reform in Liberia that would recognize customary rights to land for the first time in Liberia's history. Um, the film played a, a, a part in the passage of that Land Rights Act. So in 2018, uh, for the first time in Liberia's history, um, now um, customary rights to land has legal recognition and status. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, and then the third component of it was, was the writing of the book. But, um, and that, I think that making both the, the, the website, but part, and particularly making of the film um, was really critical to the writing of the book because it really, um, through the time I spent in Liberia and continued to spend in Liberia, I began to really appreciate um, the, the importance of land and, and, it, and its meaning and, and, and the importance of land rights and, and the ways in which these concession economies have really um, altered lives and livelihoods in Liberia. Well, so speaking of that, land um, and the, the film that you did, it, it has an interesting, if you will, twist in, in bringing in disease. Um, and I won't ruin it for those who haven't seen uh, the film, I'd highly recommend it. Um, and, and so I'm wondering about the relationship, you know, since you have done a lot of work and you even said at the beginning of the project, you thought it was a biomedical project, right? Um, but where the medical part fits in to the story as you ended up writing it in the book. Um, so is it, is it simply a, a kind of a side story or do, is it central to the way that the plantation economy as it was set up in Liberia functions? Yeah, no, it's very much central. I mean, because one of the things, one of the ways in which Firestone tried to distance itself from, you know, the kind of past, past era plantation slavery and was to, to argue that um, it's, this was, this was a, one of of medical humanitarianism and and would be one of beneficence. So, for example, um, Firestone provide as you know a, a, as part of this welfare capitalism and kind of paternalistic relationship. One of the things um, that it did was it provided um, free um, healthcare to workers on the plantations. And and uh, you know when I've interviewed folks there, that's one of the reasons particularly for women, and we don't quite know when women started working on the plantations, probably in the 1960s. Um, but when I talked to women, that's, that was one of the main reasons they came to work for on the plantations was not because of wages, but because of healthcare and particularly maternal care, childbirth, because one, uh, Liberia has one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the world. Um, that being said, um, if you look, as I mentioned, you know, in, in, in my preliminary remarks, um, medical care was segregated. The plantations themselves become an experimental laboratory for American biomedical researchers so that, um, for example, <clears throat> um, a much more uh, 
a toxic malarial drug, malaria drug was used on um, black laborers compared to white management um, because black laborers were seen to be reservoirs of, of malaria in the ways that white managers were not, even though you know it's biologically bogus. Um, there, uh, and, and, and then in 1952, Harvey Firestone Jr. to commemorate his father, gives a quarter million dollars to establish the Liberia Institute for the American Foundation of Tropical Medicine Research. <clears throat> and that becomes a, excuse me, that becomes a research laboratory for um, American and European uh, researchers. But there's no effort to build medical, uh, to, to train and build research capacity within Liberia. So when you when I talk to Liberian scientists, you know, about about that institution, that is their biggest complaint is that <clears throat> there, you know, it was always an extractive model of, of biomedical research. Um, and so, you know, there was there was really never ever effort to train librarians and advance them, you know, uh, in, in, in terms of biomedical research capacity. Um, so that's another dimension of, of the story, um, you know, in the book as well. So we have a, a great question in the chat now from uh, Danielle about, um, you know, again, is this interrogation of terminology, uh, I think, as you mentioned in the beginning uh, about the word ecology, how in the environmental humanities, it's most often now taken to just mean relationship, and you did not seem very happy about that. Right. Uh, so, I mean, not just him, but me too, would like to hear more about that. You know, how can we, as environmental historian and in the environmental humanities, work with ecology? Right. So, because I guess, you know, as someone trained initially in ecology, and then um, as a historian of science uh, and medicine, this is where like different kind of scientific perspectives come into play in terms of think, like ecosystem ecology is very different than community ecology, right? Um, and, you know, the, the, there were many scientists working on these plantations and they saw that in, and the, and particularly the folks in the, in the spaces of medicine saw themselves as doing what, uh, and, and they were really, one of the arguments I make too, is that the, the plantation becomes a site of um, the emergence of disease ecology as a, as a kind of field of study. Um, but they saw themselves as doing industrial hygiene. That's the term they used. Um, and, um, and so they were reordering life in particular ways. They were, they were bringing together you know, labor and, and this rubber tree um, and uh, you know, the conditions of the soil and, and so forth and managing it in a way where their main goal was how can we get as much latex out of a tree as efficiently as possible? So that's, you know, and when you're thinking about diseases, the other thing they focus on was, they didn't care about primary healthcare. They cared about diseases that most affected the efficiency of labor. So malaria, onchocerciasis, 
right? Those were the kinds of disease or smallpox because if it ripped through the plantations, you know, that could be devastating in terms of having enough labor, right? Um, so, uh, you know, um, so, so what, were the, what were the kinds of sciences that became involved that Firestone was more, most interested in producing and forming these industrial ecologies, right? So, you know, forestry, obviously, tropical medicine, um, uh, you know, uh, certain aspects of, of obviously um, chemistry, et cetera, that, that came together, right? Um, to uh, really, you know, create this industrial landscape. Um, and, you know, that's very different than the kind of, um, e you know, ecological, the, the sciences informing the kind of ecologies that were, say, Frank Pinder, who was developing smallholder farm agriculture at work, at, you know, in terms of develop, uh, a counter plantation model of development, right? Um, so that's what I, that's what I mean is, I mean, to, to really think about the specificity, to be, bring more specificity to understanding the ways in which um, different sciences are being mobilized to produce, uh, you know, and, and reveal certain kinds of, of, of uh, ecological relationships. Well, while we're thinking about ecological relationships, it really struck me um, your description and images then of the tappers and the and the trees um, and this wound. I thought it was a really nice way of describing. It. I don't know if that's the words your sources use, but this wound that can't be too wide or too deep. It needs to be just right for that efficiency to function um, in the tree. And so I was wondering if you could say more about the trees and how they thought about the trees and their relationship to those. Yeah. So um, uh, Hevia brasiliensis is not native to Liberia, right? It's, it's, it, it came from the Amazon uh, through an act of biopiracy. The, the British developed it into a, a, a plantation style plant, um, you know, which it, because of a fungus in the Amazonian rainforest, you can't grow rubber plantation style um, as Ford came to learn when he tried to develop his own rubber plantations in the Amazon. But in Southeast Asia and in Liberia, you can uh, because of the surrounding biota. And, um, the um, the other the other important technology that's developed that uh, becomes very important uh, is the development of clones. Um, so you know basically those uh, plantations of of millions and millions of trees are are based on maybe five clones um, that were selected in terms of uh, great greatest output. And there's a real intimate relationship that develops between the tupper and the tree. You can tup a tree for 25 years. Um, and, um, you know, as you said, Dolly, I mean, that, that it's a very pre precise, you know, imagine tapping 300 trees in one day doing that uh, and not damaging the tree. Um, so it's very skilled labor, but tappers were classified as unskilled labor. Yet they were, you know, I, they were some of the most skilled laborers on working on the, on the plantation. 
Um, um, you know, and then um, there's a number of, of different chemicals that are used. I mean, the most, I think, interesting thing is, is, is uh, uh, as, as, the, um, as the tappers say, that you need to keep latex awake. And what that means is that latex is its most valued, uh, is it, it, it's the highest value as a commodity is in a liquid state. But um, as soon as latex come out of the, comes out of the tree, bacterial uh, contamination will congeal it. It'll start to solidify. And so that's why they have to put ammonia into each cup. Um, and so they, they were required to carry this ammonia bottle with them and, and they put it into the cups each day to keep it in its liquid state. And, and that's what also uh, led to this kind of toxic landscape. Right, um, in terms of it, the, the dangers that it produced, as well as fungicides. So they would have to rub fungicides on the tree and so forth um, as well. Um, but yeah, there's this very uh, you know, complex, intimate relationship between the, the tapper and the tree that, that um, is required um, for these trees to be able to produce um, at their maximum capacity over, over the lifetime of the tree, which is 30 years. It takes seven years before you can first start tapping a tree. And then you can tap for about, as I said, 25 years, provided that you don't damage it. And there's a very specific way on, it's called a panel, that the way in which you make that scars and, and, and so forth, and then you move around the tree um, uh, in order, order to be able to um, tap it uh, you know, most efficiently. So you said initially, you know, one of your goals with this project was to to focus more on the corporation rather than the state. But I'm wondering still if you could say a little bit more about the relationship between the state and the corporation and the land, and I mean, in a way, the different lands too, uh, because you have multiple states. So it's also a story of of diplomacy and international relations. Um, so I'd like to hear just a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, obviously the, the, the state is an important presence here as well. Um, although, you know, um, in the early, in the, in the initial negotiations between the Liberian government and, and Firestone, uh, you know, the U S state department, um, tried to take a back seat to those negotiations. I mean, it was behind the scenes manipulating things in, in particular ways, no question about that. Harvey Firestone Sr. was a mover and shaker in the Republican Party. He was one of the largest donors to the Republican Party. He was one in, in the 1920s. So, you know, he helped, uh, you know, fund Calvin Coolidge's presidency, Herbert Hoover's presidency um, were all important and, and um, you know, at, in, in, in the early 30s, um, uh, while Hoover was still in power before, uh, before Franklin Delano Roosevelt assumed the presidency, um, uh, Firestone pleaded with, with Hoover to send a gunboat to protect their interests, although um, they never followed through on that. Um, so um, the the you know this the, the state does play an important role um, in the 1950s as I mentioned when when the plantations become an embarrassment it 
it, it really it really starts to push against uh, um, <clears throat> the way in which Firestone was was operating in the 1940s um, during the war. Um, <clears throat> The U.S. government establishes a military base. Um, uh, <clears throat> largely of African-Americans, but um, to protect the plantations um, as well as a, as a landing base um, for uh, movement transport planes ac across Africa. Um, so, you know, it, it, as I said, it has a, Liberia becomes a very important strategic partner um, for the United States and particularly during the Cold War, um, where there is a kind of ideological battle between the Soviet Union and the US over Africa. Um, and, you know, Liberia is really the only foothold that, that the US has in, into Africa. And so that becomes a very important uh, dimension as well. So I guess the last thing I'll ask them is because you did a very good job of describing the trajectory of your project, you know, how this has evolved over time. So I'd like to hear what comes next. Do you continue building on this into your uh, ERC project? Yeah. So, you know, in some ways, the, the biomedical component of it got carved off and, um, so I'm, um, you know, starting this new ERC project where we're putting together a team to really um, think about the relationships between the, the making of hotspots of, of like, why is it that certain regions and particularly West Africa uh, become identified as, as hotspots for emerging diseases also linked to uh, biodiversity and, and species richness um, and, and natural resource extraction. So, you know, what's the relation, <clears throat> what, if any, is there, uh, of a relationship between, um, landscape change, emerging diseases and, and, and hotspots. And so, um, one of the regions that we're focusing on is, is uh, likely to focus on is the Liberia-Guinea-Cote d'Ivoire border where uh, this area called Nimba, uh, which is a World Heritage Biodiversity Hotspot. It's also a hotspot, it's historically been a hotspot of emerging diseases like Lhasa and, and Ebola. Um, it's also the site of natural resource extraction. So it's one of the, uh, largest uh, iron ore reserves in West Africa. So in the 1970s, Bethlehem Steel and the Swedish government uh, established a, an iron ore mine there, Lampco. Um, and that is, is being reopened. There's been a, a new concession uh, is currently under the works um, with Acelor Metal, an Indian um, mining company um, to reopen that region. <clears throat> it's also been a site of, of uh, recent Ebola outbreaks and so we're kind of really digging into that, to that history more. Well, thanks very much, uh, Greg. Um, so that was Greg Mittman um, talking about his new book, Empire of Rubber, Firestone Scramble for Land and Power in Liberia. It's with the new press in 2021. Um, so thank you very much for talking with us today about it. Thank you so much for the opportunity and, and, and thanks to all of you listening.